A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. In the month of April, we're focusing on sustainability. It seems to be a green month, so let's do that. And in fact, coming up later in April, on April 22nd, we're hosting a green and sustainable innovation panel, of which today's guest is going to be part of that. So you're going to want to check it out. Head on over to thechemicalcommunity.com to sign up and to register for the event. So today, I am talking with John Timbers, who is Chief Sustainability Officer for Epsilite. And Epsilite, as you may or may not know, is the second largest producer of EPS, I guess, in North America. Anyway, John holds degrees in both chemistry and chemical engineering from the University of Michigan. So he is truly a great chemical show geek to have on. And he's been in the chemical and petrochemical industry for the last 20 years. And over the last six or more years has been really focusing on innovation and sustainability. So John and I are going to have a good conversation about his experience about Epsilide and more. So John, welcome to The Chemical Show. Thanks for having me. So tell us a bit more about you. So what's your origin story? How did you get interested in the chemical industry? And then how did you get interested in sustainability? I wonder if there are people out there that just like knew from 10 years old exactly what they wanted to do and they became chemical engineers. I haven't met one yet. So there were two very separate paths that kind of merged to be, get into this space. One was I liked sustainability. I kind of was interested in, as from a young child, recycling and sustainable forestry and things. And then separately, I enjoyed chemistry, which I guess is strange. But then the two merged at some point in my career, and it just was a great fit for me. Maybe I'll tell you a little story about how I got into sustainability, because I like to give a shout out to my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Gilzo. I was in fourth grade. Actually, in third grade, I wanted to have Mr. Gilzo as a teacher, and he decided to make a career change and become director of special programs or something, and he didn't have his own classroom. So I was really disappointed that I didn't get Mr. Gilzo as a teacher coming into fourth grade. The first time he came into the class was his special programs lesson. I didn't. I was really keen on what was going on with Mr. Gilzo, and what he taught us was about recycling. I mean, this is kind of, what, 1984 or something. Recycling was not a thing. And he came and gave the class this lesson about how landfills were filling up and this was a problem. And we actually did a little project where you took a hinge and two pieces of a two by four and made a can crusher, a recycle metal can. And he told us about the recycling drop-off for newspapers at our local grocery store. So this was kind of my first experience with recycling was the local grocery store was called Food Town and they had a, a dumpster out back. And this was a new concept for me in 1984 was, oh, we were still getting newspapers. Everyone was still getting every day. I got the Monroe Evening News in my house. You'd get your newspaper. And we had to drive like 11 miles to drop the newspaper off. But I was really like influenced by Mr. Gilzo's lesson about, oh, the landfills are filling up and this is not going to be sustainable. And so I go and there's this recycling thing, right? 
I go home and tell my dad, who we lived out in the country, right? That, hey, we need to start recycling our newspapers. My dad, who's young, born in 1948, right? His idea of driving 11 miles into town to drop off our newspapers was absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely. To this day, my dad kind of would still call me kind of that tree hugger, environmentalist who wanted to recycle the newspapers when he was in fourth grade. And so we came up with a compromise, which was we wouldn't drive into town to recycle the newspapers, but we did go into town every Sunday to go to church. So if you save up the newspapers all week long, when we go to church, we'll make a stop by the food town parking lot and recycle the newspapers. And honestly, that was how I kind of got into recycling and being concerned what the impact was on our planet for all the things that our economy is doing. That's interesting. I do remember my parents recycling newspapers and the Boy Scouts used to pick it up. So they would bundle up and we, I grew up in the Chicago area and again, always newspapers in the house because that's how people got their news and they would bundle them up and the Boy Scouts would pick them up. So that was interesting. Newspapers is probably the start for a lot of people in terms of where recycling began. So how'd you get into the chemical industry? I know you worked for Dow for quite a while. What brought you into that universe? Again, it's not that I really knew what this universe meant. I was in college and I enjoyed my organic chemistry class, which not many people do. But I went to a counselor. I was at University of Michigan and I was thinking, I really didn't know the difference between chemistry and chemical engineering. And I went to my guidance counselor and said, I'm trying to figure out what the major is. Should it be chemistry or chemical engineering? He said, well, you could do both. And in hindsight, I really think that was some of the worst advice I've ever received. (laughs) It would have been a much more straightforward path to pick one or the other. But he said, oh, and I honestly couldn't decide. So I did. I majored and got a degree in chemistry and a degree in chemical engineering. And I was at University of Michigan. I wanted to stay local. And Dow came to campus and did the recruiting thing. And I ended up at Dow. And I remember kind of going through this mental process of, okay, I'm really interested in sustainability and recycling and treating the planet well. I literally remember like my first day at Dow Chemical in Midland, Michigan going, okay, now I'm sitting here working for Dow Chemical. And I made the decision in my head that I think I can do more from the inside than from the outside. I'm sitting here, one of the biggest chemical companies in the world. I can probably influence it better. I can probably optimize their furnace. I can probably improve their yields. I can probably reduce their waste and make a bigger impact as an engineer working on the inside than as an environmentalist holding a a sign on the outside. And that was honestly my, my approach to chemistry and sustainability. That's awesome. I think that's true. And I think other folks that I've talked to on the podcast and elsewhere do make the point that in many ways, the chemical industry, inside the chemical industry, it's inherently sustainable. People want efficient processes. They want to use the chemicals, the power, the heat, the steam, whatever is generated at a manufacturing site. They want to use it efficiently and sustainability. And initially, it probably had to do with economics, but certainly those economics create the circularity inside the chemical industry that has allowed for a lot of sustainability. Now, of course, that's not always observed outside the chemical industry, which is maybe actually a really good transition to talking about Epsilite because I know Epsilite has a pretty strong sustainability message that consumers would not necessarily appreciate or understand. So why don't you jump in and tell us more about Epsilite and where it came from and what you guys are doing? Okay. I think the origin story of Epsilite is interesting. So our president CEO, Brad Crocker, 
had the idea. So I give him credit for believing that we could build a sustainable company centered around the styrene molecule. And I think Brad's open to a challenge and and, and as a chemist. And I kind of share that belief. And that's why I enjoy probably working with Brad and with Epsilite is I do believe the styrene molecule is kind of the most misunderstood molecule in the economy. And it really is a sustainable material. There's a challenge. Let's build a sustainability-focused company around the styrene molecule. And the foundation for our company is we're going to be legal, credible, ethical, and sustainable company. I think that's a challenge, right? So then Brad worked with a private equity partner, made the acquisition of a facility in Peru, Illinois in November 2020. Then we acquired Polysource in Ohio in May of 2021. And then Styrochem in Montreal in October of 2021. So kind of in the course of 11 months, made those three acquisitions and built the company through those bolt-on acquisitions to become the second largest producer of EPS in North America. The average consumer's experience with EPS is maybe through food service or disposable type of application. But in Epsilite today, 67% of our products go into durable applications. We've set the goal that by 2025, 80% of our products will go into durable applications. It's a little bit of a misperception, I'd say, in the consumer base that EPS is a single-use plastics and is in disposable applications where really the growth in EPS is in durable applications like building insulations, like geofoam, safety helmets. And so that's kind of the foundation for our company is we're building off of that chemistry of the styrene molecule and targeting durable applications for our products. Interesting. When we think about EPS expanded polystyrene, most people associate it, as you say, with food service products and styrofoam, which I don't believe is not your brand name, but People have tried to genericize it to that. And it's kind of got a bad perception, right? In the view that it's perhaps not recyclable, or it's the perception is that it's not recyclable, that it's not going to biodegrade, that it's bad for the environment. And obviously, and you've already shared that for you guys, and perhaps across the industry, the majority of it goes into durable applications. But what do you wish people knew? Because I think even inside the chemical industry, there's probably a really strong misperception of EPS. Okay, so since this is a chemical industry podcast, I think I can get into the chemistry just a little bit here, okay? Sure, go for it. Don't over-chemistry us, though. Okay. (laughs) I mean, polystyrene is a very unique molecule. It's a fully amorphous thermoplastic. So thermoplastic means you can melt it and form parts repeatedly over and over. Fully amorphous means it doesn't have a true melting point it has a glass transition temperature. So if you've ever been to one of those kind of glass blowing festivals or something where they heat glass up and they blow bubbles, you know, glass has, doesn't have a melting point. It has a glass transition temperature. Polystyrene doesn't have a melting point. It has a glass transition temperature. So you can blow a bubble with polystyrene. And so a thermoplastic that you can blow a bubble with is a unique material. That's kind of what makes polystyrene unique on the molecular level from a chemistry standpoint. So how we leverage that is we can make materials that are 98% air. And so in EPS applications, you're insulating buildings, installing foundations for roads and bridges, you're shipping vaccines, 
with a material that's 98% air. This is why EPS almost always wins if you look at two materials from a life cycle analysis assessment of what's the overall environmental footprint of material A versus EPS. EPS will almost always win because it's 98% air. I sometimes said EPS puts air to work in our economy. It's less expensive to transport from a weight perspective, and it also provides all the insulating properties, which is where it primarily gets used. Am I right? Is that the point of it? Right. And you're using less material to begin with. So you're using less fossil fuels, you're using less energy, you're using less transportation energy. One of the, my favorite statistics is over 50 years, a house insulated with EPS will save 36 times more energy than it took to produce, ship, and install that EPS insulation. So it's just that efficiency. And so a lot of times, historically, we found this molecule that's extremely efficient, and we've used it for single-use applications because it's the cheapest way to make a cup, right? But as we're, the world has shifted and focused more on sustainability, we've said, okay, well, if we have a material that's extremely efficient, is the best use of it for making a disposable cup? Or is the best use to make a vaccine or to insulate a house? And so the EPS industry has been shifting over the last several years from those applications that were leveraging its efficiency to make cheap products to applications that are using its efficiency to make low carbon footprint products. That's interesting. So when you guys look at your customers... When I look at your messaging, a lot of it is about this efficiency and the value that it brings in using it as insulation, et cetera, et cetera. When you guys look at your customers, who are you really targeting with your products and who are you targeting with your messaging? Because I think sometimes it's really hard, right? There's a lot of resistance built up across individuals about what EPS means. And those individuals exist either inside or outside of the industry that you might be targeting. But who are you guys really targeting when you think about your customers and you think about your messaging? I really think with our messaging, we are trying to create messaging that can move through the value chain, if that makes sense. So I think this is one of the interesting lessons I've learned working in polymers and sustainability, right? is often if you're a polymer producer, you're pretty far upstream in the value chain. You're selling to a molder who's selling to a brand owner who's maybe selling to the consumer. And if you want to create messages that go through that value chain with your material, you have to put a little bit of emphasis on telling an intriguing story and making content that is engaging. And what we really want to do is create content that our customer would take and pass to his customer and their customer pass to the consumer. And that's the hard part about, I think, being the sustainability and the chemical industry where you're upstream, you want to get that science lesson passed down through the chain. And that's a little difficult. Well, and then you guys have obviously acquired, you're bolting on companies and you're bolting on companies that are developing industrial products as well as producing the EPS itself. What's your profile as you look at that? So we've looked at our acquisitions, both from a financial perspective, but also from a technology perspective, right? So after our initial acquisition of the Peru, Illinois facility, that facility was already over 70% in durable applications. So when we looked at their markets, we said, okay, they really didn't have, they're largely going into insulation, building and construction applications. 
Then when we looked at polysource, we actually, that's an extrusion technology. So that's probably from a technology platform, one we're really excited about from an innovation and sustainability standpoint. Suspension reactor technology is kind of notoriously sensitive to things like contamination. So not a great technology for recycling. But extrusion technology is, I don't know if notoriously insensitive is the right word, but much more robust to contamination and recycling. So we looked at the extrusion technology at Polysource and said, and we felt like it's a great foundation for growing recycling. And that's one of our goals is to be recycling 4 million pounds a year by 2025 at that facility. Awesome. So you have the ability to recycle as well as produce. Yeah. And then when we looked at the Styrochem acquisition, they had done a lot of innovation in the biodegradable space. And I'd say only post-closing that acquisition have I really got an education on all the work they did. And actually have just done a lot of good science on enzymatic biodegradation processes. So we're focused on this technology as an end-of-life solution for our products. And I like to take the opportunity to educate people that there's oxo-degradable technologies, which kind of unfortunately gave biodegradable plastics a little bit of a bad name because they kind of break down and disintegrate into really small pieces and created some negative perception of biodegradable plastics and even some legislation around anti-supportive legislation of biodegradable technology. But our biodegradable technology that was really developed by our Styrochem partners is an enzymatic process. We're truly we're turning the plastic into food, then bugs are eating it instead of just breaking apart. And so that was really, from a sustainability standpoint, the value of that acquisition was in their biodegradable technology and all the work they had done on that, all the IP they had developed and, and data. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's not just acquiring volume, let's say. You guys have been strategically acquiring different technologies to support your sustainability vision for the business. Absolutely. Part of my job is part that has a source of a little bit of pressure is, okay, John, make the acquisitions materialize, make the sustainability uh, proposition of the polysource acquisition materialize. So let's see us recycle more material. Okay, make the sustainability-focused acquisition of Styrochem materialize here. So that is something we're doing. I think I already said we're focusing to grow our volume so that 80% is all in durable applications. The other 20% that are in disposable applications will all contain our biodegradable technology. So, and I know we talked earlier about sustainability reporting. I think you guys published a sustainability report and who cares? Well, people care, but are your customers seeking more sustainable EPS? Are they seeking those solutions and those answers from you? Or do you find that they're seeking alternatives? How does that play out when you work with your customers? So a little bit of both here, more sustainable EPS versus alternatives. I think from our perspective, we think the value for EPS is created when we are used in the most valuable application, the application that really means that unique properties of EPS. And so if we can put our efficient product into durable applications, life-sustaining applications, vaccine shipments and helmets, where we feel like, hey, there's a, there's a differentiated value for EPS. And if customers have a material that is better or cheaper, or I hate to say even more sustainable, we are supportive of people moving to the most sustainable material. I think our view is if everyone follows the science and picks the best material for the application, our growth trajectory will be sustainable and profitable. So we don't 
try to keep everyone in EPS. So disposable applications, for example, you know, we're strategically de-emphasizing disposable applications. We understand that there's a movement toward reusables and more widely recycled materials, and we're okay with that. There's still a profitable market for EPS and the durable applications. As far as more sustainable, the people who need EPS for their applications, whether it's insulation or packaging or perishable shipments, they still want a more sustainable EPS. So they absolutely ask us for that. Again, it's a little bit of the story of as a, as a polymer supplier, you're often up chain. So there's a converter or molder that's your customer. And then on the other side of that converter or molder, there's a brand owner, right? So it's often that brand owner that's really sending the request back to the molder who sends the request back to the resin supplier. And that's part of the learning for me in working in sustainability in an upstream business is the request for sustainability is coming kind of two layers down, right? Game of phone tag, right? <laughs> Telephone, where those messages gets passed up and the message gets passed down. But yeah, demand for more sustainable EPS is definitely coming from our customers. Well, and I think this is true when we look at sustainability and circularity overall. It does seem that the demand is coming from the brand owners, right? Because they're closest to the consumers. They've made promises to the consumers and to their stakeholders and shareholders that they're going to hit certain targets, right? Around circularity, sustainability, they all, everybody crafts it a slightly different way. What I also think is interesting is you guys have really started up your first acquisitions. All your acquisitions have been since started the pandemic, right? And I know you've talked a little bit about vaccine coolers, which obviously we know has been critical to get the COVID vaccines out. Some of them have been very temperature sensitive. What's been unique? What are some of the unique things that have occurred that maybe are different to what you would expect given just the challenges of the pandemic, the challenges of supply chain, et cetera? A lot has been a challenge, right? So, I mean, there's the kind of workforce safety challenge. And that's actually, strange way, been the easiest one because from the top, our owners, our CEO, has safety as number one. There's really no gray area. We don't need to really talk about it anymore, right? You're going to wear your mask. You're going to stay home if you're sick. That was just been kind of no question about the kind of keeping our workforce safe piece, although it has felt a little different. But from a running the business perspective, the supply chain changes have been maybe unforeseen and keep surprising you, right? You keep getting new information that you didn't see coming. From my perspective, working in sustainability and kind of trying to build a sustainable communications and doing things like the sustainability report, I think when I came into Epsola, I imagined we do all those things for our customers because that's the person we're trying to convince them to buy products and we're a sustainable company and we're a growing company and all the things you do to sell your company, you're typically directing toward your customer. And in 2022, we're actually finding we have to sell our company to our suppliers. The supply is tight as logistics constraints are constraining supply. Our suppliers are actually kind of saying, well, who are you? Are you a sustainability-focused company? Are you focused on recycling and end-of-life solutions for your product? Are you doing a sustainability report? And it's that has been really interesting to me how we in 2022, mostly because of kind of supply chain challenges and logistics challenges brought on by COVID, we're needing to sell our sustainability work to our suppliers. They're going, going, okay, you're a good partner. Your company we want to work with will supply you. 
Why do you think that is though? Why do you think that's so important to your suppliers? I think they're just like the rest of the industry. It's just a matter of where we sit in the supply chain, right? Of your suppliers versus your customers. We're all kind of in the same space and they're looking to grow their focus on sustainability, make their company more sustainable. And they're What's interesting is we talked a little bit about Ecovatus, for example, of there's these systems for your customers to kind of audit you as a supplier. Are you a sustainable supplier? I could imagine if the logistics things stay the way they are in 2022, where your supplier may have audit programs to say, hey, are you a a sustainability-focused customer? Because that's who we want to do business with. That's interesting. It is definitely a flip versus what we typically think about, right? In terms of shifting where the power is in the value chain, but also just what the drivers are across the value chain have turned a bit. And I've also had a handful of experiences where as the chief sustainability officer, either HR, who's working on hiring, will say, hey, we're really using your sustainability report to help us in the recruiting process, which I never saw that coming. Or I had an example where we were hiring a plant manager at our Peru, Illinois facility. The hiring team said, hey, John, can you come out and meet with him? Because he wants to know what Epsilite's sustainability vision is as part of the process. That's big, actually, because that's not what you expect, right? So this is a whole new world in terms of what's driving both customers, what's driving employees and stuff. And I'm sure as chief sustainability officer, that was not, you didn't expect to be involved in plant manager hiring, but that's kind of cool. That that's come to bear. And so I must have did a good job because Mark started a couple of weeks ago. Now our new plant manager in Peru, Illinois facility is very sustainability focused. Which is great, which is, I guess, the mission that your company is hoping for. So I know you're putting together some ambitious goals and you mentioned one of your targets was around 80% of your product going into durable goods. Is there anything else that, any other targets that you can share? And I know if you can't, but yeah. I think of our sustainability initiatives are kind of in two buckets. There are processes, which are kind of internal Epsilite processes. That's like putting out an annual sustainability report. I think transparency is one of the pillars of sustainability. If you're going to build a sustainable company, you got to be transparent about things like your safety performance, your environmental performance, your programs around diversity, inclusion, and community outreach. Um, so we're implementing you know, sustainability-focused processes. It's our goal to be carbon neutral in 2023. So it's a very ambitious goal. That's right around the corner. Yeah. The more people that give me that surprise look, the more I start sweating about, whew, this is going to be a tough one. But I think we're on track to be carbon neutral um, in 2023. So those are kind of sustainable processes that we're focused on. And then we have our sustainable product focus, which, yeah, 80% of our products go into durable applications by 2025. The other 20% that are going into disposable applications use our biodegradable technology. Ever-increasing recycled content really built on that technology foundation at the PICWA extrusion technology. And the fourth one, which we haven't talked about too much, is innovating for higher R-value insulation material. Our view is that energy conservation is key to carbon neutrality, that our materials insulate buildings and insulate shipments. We save energy and it'll help the world be carbon neutral in the future. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because I think I've talked to a few folks outside of the podcast about the energy transformation and you know the shift to green sustainable energy. And what often is not talked about is reduction of energy consumption. And yet it's hard to imagine 
an effective energy transition without also consciously working to use less energy and be more energy efficient. And that that needs to be part of the overall sustainability objectives that we go to. I think we are going to build a more sustainable world in the future. It's like thousands of companies each doing their little part to make a more sustainable future. If I work for an insulate, a company that makes insulation materials, it's incumbent on me to make better insulation materials. If I'm in a service sector or finance sector where maybe I don't make a material, but I employ a lot of people, it's incumbent on me to focus on human capital and diversity and inclusion in those areas of sustainability. And if you're an energy company, focusing on cleaner energy production. So I think this kind of macro trend of sustainability is going to be successful through not John Timbers working at Epsilite, but thousands of chief sustainability officers that are out there across all different sectors and all different industries making their company more sustainable. That's a great point. So John, what's next for Epsilite? Are you looking for more acquisitions? What are we going to be seeing coming from Epsilite here in the near future? We're always looking to grow. Those opportunities are out there. We're really focused on that recycling process at the Pico, Ohio facility. We'd like that facility to become a certified recycling center where we have a lot of flexibility of what we can bring in and systems to control the quality of the product out. So I'd say that's a little bit in its infancy, but we want to build that into a recycling center. This is going to sound a little strange, but we're looking forward to the logistics system kind of normalizing because we need some imports of EPS into North America. Our view is without some imports, the market might be incentivized to replace EPS with other materials because it's in short supply. So we actually need some imports to come in. In 2022, we're really focused on converting all our disposable applications to biodegradable and educating our customers in the market about biodegradable technology. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you guys have a great agenda. You've been starting strong as a young company with buttoning up some older businesses and new technologies. So that's really excellent. John, thank you for joining us today on The Chemical Show. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I appreciate the invite. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening. Keep listening, liking, sharing, and following the podcast. And we will see you next time. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.